Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today I'm very happy to introduce to you Joe Hutchins. Now, welcome Joe to the show. Thank you, thank you for having me on. No, welcome welcome to the show. Now, today we're hit talking all about taxonomic groups within the industry, and who better to talk to than yourself. Now, before we do get there, if you want to tell all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and the, the position you hold. Uh, oh, so yeah, so um, uh, my name's Joe Hutchins, so I am... Uh, an actress at Chester Zoo and I've been there a little over a year now. Ah, amazing, amazing. Now, obviously, we don't just fall into these roles. We very much have to build ourselves and, and build our, our careers to get to the positions we are in today. I'm sure you've got them, but have you got any stepping stones, any true landmark moments to get into the position you're in? Yeah, absolutely. So first did work experience in about 2009 and I uh, got my first keeping position at Birdworld somewhere after just while I was still doing my A-levels. So at that point I was absolutely not an aquarist. I was a bird keeper and I, I thought that that's it I'm going to work with birds now and it was absolutely fantastic. I'd, I'd already planned on deferring my like I was going to go off and do a zoology degree. Uh, you know, I thought that would be, be great. I'll, I'll go into the zookeeping. And then I ended up looking at a local college to check out an evening bird of prey course for a little bit of CPD, which I never actually ended up doing officially. I later helped out with it. But I came away knowing I could do an animal behavior and welfare degree at a college way closer to me. We're talking hundreds of miles closer to home, which meant I could keep my bird keeper job. Absolutely what I wanted. You know, I was working birds doing that. But a year, about a year after starting that degree, I ended up been working with the farm section as well as the birds. And I started working at the college as an animal technician and with one of my colleagues on their small holding uh, as well. So that's where I sort of really started branching out a little bit more into those other taxa but it was, it was a very busy time because I was working three jobs and my degree and I was a Cub Scout leader at the same time uh, and everything else there was a lot going on at the time it was just very uh, logistically difficult just trying to manage all that time resource and um, but it was while I was working as an animal technician that I started working with fish at all um, the existing exotics person uh, left and one of my colleagues and good friends they took more of the responsibility of the exotic department and the reptile side but I helped out with the fish honestly at that point i'd only been looking after my pet fish which were very very basic i had some mollies uh, i had a clown loach which actually ended up following me throughout my career fantastic i think she's now at uh, crocodiles of the world though uh, and should be about 27 i think about now but yes yeah, so that's where i helped out with some more of the fish and yeah it was a learning curve to say the least we during my degree we did talk a little about fish, but I think it was only about one lesson. And uh, some of the mistakes I made were just, it was just so simple. But I carried on learning and I took some more extra hours on as a technician and working with my uh, colleagues' farm animals, although we'd got more exotics by then as well. And then I went back to Birdworld, but this time as a full-time Acris role. And so, yeah, so I worked at Birdworld for about six years. I still, for the first year, carried on working on my alternate weekends I carried on working there at college as well which was a, a bad plan <laughs> because I was uh, and volunteering at the college on my 
other day off, my weekday day off um, from Birdworld for about 11 months of the year, I think which wasn't a very healthy time. And I wasn't very healthy or probably very nice, if I'm honest, uh, at that point. So I think it's very important to kind of be more responsible and mindful of the experience you're getting because it doesn't necessarily help other, yourself or other people. But yeah, so I was at Bird World for about six years. But in 2020, we closed the aquarium due to COVID and the age of the building. And I was made redundant, uh, which was pretty challenging because I had a lot of emotional ties at Bird World. You know, it was my first bird keeping job there. I'd worked on the farm there. It was close to where I grew up just my whole community and support network um, and although at times it absolutely frustrated me beyond belief as I'm sure we can all appreciate with our our jobs um, I cared about it a lot and it was somewhere I'd wanted to stay for a long time um, but it really opened up some opportunities so and it's almost thanks to COVID because of the COVID limitations on the indoor spaces the Bird World Aquarium never reopened and if it had i don't think i'd left those safe opportunities those safe spaces but yeah we announced the closure internally in august uh, and i stayed until december looking after the fish until they were rehomed and by then i then went and started at sea life london aquarium which really got me into the big systems so i was there for about uh, a year and i did some really cool stuff at london working with some native species medicating wolfish weighing sea turtles um, hand rearing gentoo penguins microchipping stingrays such cool stuff and working with you know over 30 paku uh native skate all that kind of thing but you know the commute was really big deal as well as time and financial costs um i'd been using a lot of the redundancy payment to to help me get there but then the job came up at chester zoo applied got the position and now my travel time is the shortest it's been since about 2018 and yeah it's, it's just so fantastic and yeah I, I should mention while i was at the college i did it was an animal behavior and welfare degree that i did so there's a bit of that experience and education. Ah, oh, sounds sounds great. And already I can hear that you're not a one trick pony. There's no, there's not just one taxonomic group. But I'm sure we'll we'll go into that more. But if someone was to ask you, and this is probably one of the hardest questions for a keeper, if I were to ask you what type of keeper, what taxonomic group do you fall in? Is there a, a box that you would fall in, or are you still quite a versatile keeper? I'd say I'm still fairly versatile, but. I'd definitely say I am falling more into that aquarist role now. Uh, it's nothing else than it's uh, just something that I'm far more used to over the last few years and just getting that a little bit more comfort and specialty. I'm aware that certainly with some things on birds and that the world is carrying on and I am less up-to-date with the most up-to-date research, whereas you hear a little bit more with, just with the things that you're actively involved in, you hear some of those more up-to-date things. But yeah, there's still a little bit of versatility there. Totally, totally. And obviously, it's uh, it, I guess it's the whole industry. It's living in the present, living with what you've got and the opportunity that is, is gifted to you. With regards to that taxonomic group, then those those uh, lovely fish that you work with, the, the lovely aquatic life that you work with, what would you say to our listeners in terms of why should they work with them? What makes them so special? What makes them what they are? So there is a sheer amount of variety with the fish. I don't just work with fish, invertebrates too. So all our corals, still marine based. Uh, you've got all the urchins, sea stars. We've got jellyfish. I've previously worked with reptiles whilst doing the same sort of role, particularly crocodilians. Got other things. So currently I work with uh, native stoneflies. So there's just so much variety. And that's just looking at them all. When we look at the fish as well, we've got so many different species that I'll be working with on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's just a sheer number of different species. But then you've got so many different individuals as well. So the team I'm with at the moment, we look after 13,000 animals a day. 
just on the aquarium side and we've not got a massive ocean tank that you see a lot of the larger sea life and that which I've worked with before and you know you've got essentially 100 different species in there with all their different requirements and needs and just little interests you could take one little corner of the aquarium industry spend your life pursuing it and you'll still be learning new things all the time there's just so much diversity and so much to learn and a lot of it is just so crucial because they require they just depend on us for everything because we're putting in everything that they're living in the food obviously as we do with all of our animals just all of their environmental parameters so the temperature the flow uh, the water chemistry the water quality uh, the flow rate the flow type the temperature uh, and the content and the quality of the very air dissolved in that water everything is just so much so many different little niches yeah no totally totally and i guess before we move on is this is touching on your your career path that you talked about do you see comparisons but also differences between the taxonomic groups and and the keeping staff behind them what's what's involved what's needed how how does an aquarist compare to say a bird keeper yeah so i think there's there's a lot of differences but actually the longer i look at it i think there's a lot of benefits to taking aspects of one and taking it across to the other so one thing like particularly with the aquatic side, like I said, you're looking at all of those environmental factors. And that's something that certainly when I was starting out as a bird keeper, and certainly I was less experienced at the time anyway, but it's easier to be right there in this aviary and we've given them a nest box and there you are. You've got two birds, you've got a nest box, it's spring, go. That's kind of your use to that kind of seasonality and what we've got. Whereas when you take it across from the aquatic side and you're looking at those environmental parameters as well and just the natural history of the species so say it's a hornbill and they naturally nest in living the holes in living trees so that humidity in that nest hole is automatically going to be higher well if you're providing them a nest box that's just made of maybe varnished wood there's nothing there is the humidity right are you setting those animals up for the best success they can have and similarly you can take the aspect of bird keeping and apply it to aquatics as well so some things don't translate very well but one thing that uh, one of my old head keepers said to me i still think about it now and it's i haven't worked with peking robins in 11 years i think but i still think about it all of the time and that he always said about if you had an aviary and it just had one bush in it and you had peking robins you wouldn't see the peking robins because they've got one place to hide so they're just going to be hiding whereas if you put loads of theming in there loads of planting and just make them really secure in that environment, then you're going to see them loads because they've got loads of hiding places. They can pop in and out and they're going to feel far more secure. There's probably a fair number of aquarists who will have started as aquarists and still followed that up. But for me, I'm always thinking about it from the bird's point of view, even though they're fish. Absolutely something I still just bring across. Totally. And I say, I can hear the hear the passion in your voice with regarding to, to, to fish. I mean, aquatic life, I guess it's, it's almost a hard one to sell to a certain degree. It's not quite as fluffy as a, a, a little puppy. It's not quite as cute as maybe a... You know, I'm biased, but as a koala, but but yeah, it is quite magical in its own way, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So they are magical, but like you said, they're very different as well. So it doesn't help that they're so separate from us. If from nothing else, then they're behind a piece of glass. Unless you're uh, in a large tank and you're diving with them, 
there's not really any way they can interact with you unless you're right there at the surface of the tank. I used to work with the Tang, and it was a fantastic little sales in Tang. And he would never did it for, not that I saw anyway, he didn't seem to do it for people wearing the same color as me, like the uniform. He didn't seem to do it for my brother when he visited, but he would do this little display in front of the window whenever I was near it. Whether or not that's just me uh, completely personifying it um, and anthropomorphizing it, I don't know. I didn't do any studies into it, but I'm very confident that some fish will recognize human faces. It's certainly been tested with archfish. They can recognize individual human faces, but they can't interact with us because if you're in a particularly bad mood or what have you, it's behind a piece of glass. You can just walk past that fish and not see it uh, and not see it trying to interact with you. Whereas, you know, when I used to work with pigs and sheep and even reindeer, although they're generally a little bit more aloof, if they want to come over to you and you're walking past their field or walking through their field, that you can absolutely just walk up to you and be like hello i'm here i'm fluffy and i want attention whereas the fish they just can't do that so there is that difference but they're absolutely if you look for it you can find that connection there not necessarily with everything certainly like small barbs and that they're still going to be small and shy and not go for that attention but for um, a lot of the cichlids even things like uh, common pet species like clown loach you can really easily train them and they can be really tame. They're so clever. There's absolutely just that interaction there for so many species. I, I guess that links on. It, it, I mean, everything you just said links on perfectly to this next question. And that is enrichment. You know, enrichment's part of, of part of zookeeping in the modern day. It's part of our, our lives. And it sounds like you are very much enriching your, your little tang and, and someone's life. It's, it's, it's something which we all want to do. We all want to, you know, I always think a good bit of enrichment entertains the keeper just as much as its, uh, its intended uh, destination. But with regards to the taxonomic groups, each one's totally different. Each one, you can't give something to something which, you know, your one will have to probably be waterproof compared to something which goes to an elephant, which has to be super strong. With your taxonomic group, how is your enrichment different? And have you got any anything which you've you've used over your time, which has allowed your animals to show that natural behavior or to simply just occupy them on a day to day basis? Yeah, so it is like you say, it's so different. I really miss the days where I could just get an empty feed sack stuff it with straw or hay and some pig nuts and just chuck it in a field and they'll just have a riot and have a great old time. A cardboard box filled with bugs and shredded paper for the mealworms uh, for uh, meerkats. I, I can't do that. I really don't want to put shredded paper or cardboard in my tanks <laughs> and I don't think the fish would appreciate it either. Some things that I have done, a lot of them will relate to food, but it can just be uh enriching the environment so putting in different plants different things that they can pick on or nibble at which does end up becoming a bit more of a food uh, enrichment again but so things for it, it really just depends on what they have because again it's just so varied so things like malawi cichlids or tangs they're grazers generally so giving them say vegetables or leafy greens or to some extent browse they can sit there and pick at it and have a little graze on there you really do have to think about what they're what they're getting so if you're giving lettuce to cichlids all the time really great for them to be grazing on and it's really easy to just weigh down a red loose leaf and have them happy for hours but it's not something that's great for them to be having every single day all the time so giving them that little bit of variety and that's where you know i've given things nettles i've given things like i say the lettuce 
Um, one thing that I offered, because uh, I couldn't find anything indicating that it was unsafe, certainly seemed to be safe. I never had any problems, but I'd definitely recommend people checking it out before trying it themselves, is offering flowers different species so things like buddleia some of the fish actively ignored buddleia flowers but things like the clown flight really loved it and they'd just be sat there like just picking away picking all the little flower heads off for hours now i work at chester we've got a lot of gadead species and for our grazing gadead species what we're actively trying to do um, which is understandably a lot easier off show than on show just for the pure reason of aesthetic is just allowing algae to grow on the sides of the tank just to give them those natural grazing opportunities throughout the day without us having to do anything extra for them so that's the more natural side but then we've done other things for slightly more predatory species so one of the least natural enrichments that i have ever done was make a tower like the Kaplunk game for our Picasso triggerfish. And all it was was just some egg crating on four sides, some bamboo sticks. They did need replacing, so, you know, in salt water and didn't want to leave them soaking all the time. Also wanted something natural that would float. And then there'd just be cockle in shell in there. So all they'd need to do is push the sticks out or pull them out, and then the cockle would fall out. He could have a little pick at the cockle. Again, it's food that's in shell, so it's as well as enriching and just being a natural behaviour, not that the kaplunk is natural, working on the shell, it also helps to keep their teeth in good condition. So that was a really useful thing. And yeah, so we'd just suspend suspend this and they could go up and pull or uh, push another one out, get another cockle and just keep going back to it, spending a little bit of time on that. Although it was also, I had a Dardanus hermit crab in the same tank and he learned about it a little bit quicker than the Picasso triggerfish. So it was uh, interesting to see that see who got there first some great enrichment now obviously enrichment is one thing but any any good zoo any good zookeeper creates a good enclosure and that's the design of that enclosure and, and hopefully occupying that animal when you're not there once again usually being a very mammal based person myself we're talking about fencing we're talking about the substrate we're talking about you know, the housing requirements and, and what you can put in it. I'm going to be honest, I don't even know where you're going to start with this. So I'm going to pass this straight over to you. What what enclosure design goes into aquatic life and what's so important? Are there any key components which really are essential and, and make the difference on a training aspect through to a husbandry aspect? Well, sort of everything is very important. Luckily, we don't really have to worry a lot with fences. So there's always that. But substrate is an important one for us as well. Partly in terms of if we're trying to grow plants in there, for example, then we need to make sure that we've potentially got an enriching substrate, something with a lot of nutrients for the plants, depending on how we're trying to grow those plants. So there's a lot of the aesthetic side to plant growing and the nutrients they require, but then that's also providing that more varied enclosure for the tank. Um, It's providing those breaks in line of sight. It's potentially providing grazing opportunities, providing areas of safety so not just lines breaks of line of sight from one another but areas of security away from members of the public they want to go off and hide so there's so many things that can be done that is irrelevant when it comes to marine tanks because you're not going to be putting many plants in marine tanks unless you're going with mangrove but then the substrate is still going to be desperately important because that could actually provide an area of your filtration or if it impacts uh, and then becomes anaerobic that can then cause problems for your water quality as opposed to providing benefits to your water quality if it's helping your filtration. The water itself is such a big part 
there's a thing that's often said about you don't look after the fish, you look after the water. And you obviously do need to look after the fish as well. But it's a lot easier if you look after the water. So if the water is wrong, then you're going to have so much of a more difficult time looking after your fish uh, or invertebrates or whatever you happen to be caring for. So that's such a big part. And then you've got the things, all the life support systems. So your filtration, which is, could be anything like mechanical, biological, chemical, that's what it normally boils down into. All of that is just so desperately important. If you don't have good filtration, then you're going to have poor water quality, potentially poor water chemistry as well. And then that's going to provide, that's what your fish are living in. And that can cause detriment to their health, just sheerly from the toxic environment or from reduced immune system, immunability, purely because they're trying to osmoregulate the whole time just because the amount of chemicals in the water are wrong. It's so, so desperately complex. So the most important thing I would say is filtration, just absolutely filtration, because I like to think it matters if you've got real plants or fake plants. But I'm aware that if they've got places to hide, fake plants aren't going to provide the opportunity to graze. They're not going to provide filtration benefits, but they are still going to offer an opportunity to hide. But the filtration is really the main thing because they've just got to have that good water. A lot of things that we often hear, don't you just feed flake? Isn't that not just your whole job, just quite a bit of flake and that's it? There's just so much that goes into looking after the water and then everything else follows on from there. Everything looks into looking after the water, that helps you look after your fish. Sort of where I'm rambling about water a lot, but that is absolutely just, just where it ends up going most of the time. If nothing else, like the whole of the rest of the tank design is usually designed around the flow and keeping the water in. But real big problems if you don't keep the water in. Sounds great. Obviously, very, very important. You're exactly right. And and uh, yes, yeah, really, uh, really wise words. Now, on that, and this is the, the last bit before we go into the deep end, no pun intended. And that is for a bit of advice for our listeners. And that is throughout your journey, obviously, you've been on been on a journey yourself. You've been through quite a few things. Uh, do you have any advice looking back from your career to maybe your younger self or or someone listening in to what the industry is about and, and what they get themselves into? But in general, a bit of advice. The sort of advice for getting into the industry would be, and, and just about it, would just be get as much experience as you responsibly can. So, you know, don't get yourself going broke. You want to look after yourself, but just keep yourself open to learning and just keep finding new experiences when i first started out i started out on birds and that was it i was going to be a bird keeper i knew that was that was it birds 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 of my life but and I, I enjoyed my time as a bird keeper but i absolutely wouldn't have thought 12 years ago that i would be working with fish now i thought you know that's a completely separate bit but i've that's where i'm at you know, I did a little bit of work experience, ended up having to look after some fish at the college and this is where I am and I don't think I'd trade it for anything. So just keep sort of looking for that experience and you might find a niche you didn't expect, you didn't really think you were looking for. But like I said, go sort of responsible with it because I've known, known of some people who've sort of almost gone too hard and they've put so much energy into it and so much time and resources and finances and then they go broke and they almost resent it a little bit and that sort of that doesn't really help anyone that you sort of you really want to look after yourself as well because otherwise you're just going to end up resenting the industry and then you've you've not helped yourself either so it's also okay if you come in do some experience and find it isn't for you i've had people who've come in on work experience to go actually i really thought i'd like fish water chemistry i hate water chemistry and found that yeah okay yeah if you hate water chemistry maybe fish keeping is not for you 
and then you don't have to stick it out. You know, you've done that and you can go on and try the next thing. And like I said, just find that niche that you didn't know you were looking for. Also, water chemistry is, is actually interesting. It might not seem it, but once you get a little bit, it's a little bit infectious. Yeah, I can see very quickly this podcast is going away from what I thought it was going to be as fish. And it's becoming very much the water podcast, which is great. It's great to hear about this and to, to learn. I'm, I'm learning away along with the lovely listeners. Now, it's uh, really, really, really interesting. Now, we're, we're going to move in. And this is by this point, the listeners know what's coming. And that is the big questions. Now, it's the big questions from within. It's a variety of different things which the industry, we chuck around. No one truly answers them. And I don't think there is a true answer, but we'll we'll give it a go and we'll, we'll see how we get on, Joe. Now, number one is the, the industry as a whole. Doesn't matter what role you serve within it. It's hugely demanding, massively demanding with everything we're now asked for in the modern day. That old school approach or the old school view of zookeeping being you're effectively a poo picker is long gone. We're not, we're so much more than that. In your opinion, what is the largest challenge as a zookeeper? And and if you managed it or trying to manage it, how have you learned slash how would you overcome it? I think sort of going into that bit about the responsible amount of uh, experience, I think the largest thing ends up almost being burnout. Like you say, the job is just so demanding sometimes in terms of physicality and the mental load and even your compassion. And it can really just sort of, add up i mean i certainly i don't throw around hay bales like i used to but i'm still carrying bags of salt rocks around logs all sorts when you've got big charismatic animals and one dies that's very upsetting you know most of us will probably have been there and it's just so upsetting with uh, aquatics and with birds there's often jokes about the dark humor because often it is those smaller ones and you don't have necessary so much of that personal bond with that individual animal like i sort of said about small preyed upon barbs you're not going to have that personal bond with them like i said we're also looking after 13,000 animals a day so statistically we're going to see you know we're going to see more losses than things like tiger keepers because we've just got sheer numbers on our side and it, it just sort of still can add up so i think burnout is really the big one especially when you've got larger animals and you might have sort of that lock anxiety or in terms of more the aquatic side again same sort of anxiety but did I turn that heater back on did I turn that pump back on did I leave that thing off and I shouldn't have done and then if you're not sleeping at night because of that anxiety then the next day you're going to be more tired again and more likely to make those mistakes and then more stressed out and it just ends up spiraling and spiraling and spiraling particularly in jobs I've had before I found that the amount of mental work I take home I just will be going over and over and over and over it you just don't get a break because you're not letting yourself get a break you're not letting yourself thinking about anything else so one of the things that I try and do more about it now is like we'll have a little discussion like we'll have a discussion at the end of the day at work or I'll have a part a conversation with my partner about you know how our days were right all the wrongs of the world have a little bit of discussion about it and i think about the day ahead when i'm having a shower but i try and limit it to just that and not don't try and sit there and think about like oh what if i did this and did i do that right and what could i do about those i try not to do that just because it ends up taking your time and your energy and then you're not coming back in fresh and i really notice the difference on the days you know i'm not perfect on it and sometimes there's been times when i've uh, had work from home being sat there doing on a computer or doing a little bit of research that kind of thing but you could definitely notice the difference when i come back in so just always try and have that little bit of break from it and that switch off from work so i do have 
um, access the emails on my phone, but I don't have the notifications on because I like I don't blame people for emailing at eleven o'clock at night if it's suddenly in their head and they've not been able to push it out. I think it's better to write it down and get it out, and then you can stop thinking about it for a bit. But then if you've got the notification on your phone and you get an email at eleven o'clock, then you're going to be thinking about it. And I don't, that's often what, you know, that's not the intention of the person sending the email that is a result of it. So just, unless you're on call, if you're on call, this advice is terrible advice. I'm very lucky that I'm not on call anymore. So that's okay. I can do that. But yeah, if you're not in a position where you need to be on call, I think it's really important to have that, just have that little bit of a break, just a mental break away from work if you can, and just try and come back in fresh. Like when you're on holiday, I'm very lucky. I... I like all my colleagues and I have for the last few jobs, I think they're all great and fantastic people. But even the more sociable work chat, if I'm on holiday, that all goes on mute. Sorry, I love you, but I'm on holiday. I don't want to hear from you. Don't want to hear about it. I just don't want to know. Uh, And I think that helps you go back in and have that little bit more freshness and appreciation for your time away. Totally, couldn't agree more. Now, we'll move on to that next question then. And the next question, it leads to presentation and it leads to how we present ourselves to our, our paying public, our guests, our, our effectively our audience out there. Um, now, we, we obviously are there in the modern day to spread the word on conservation and, and simply, hopefully, trying to convince our, our animals are the best. Our animals are amazing. The question I've got with this, though, is there are many zoos in the UK, let alone in the world, and everyone's on the same hymn sheet, but does slightly their own thing because we aren't all the same. That's as simple as it gets. Do you feel currently we're doing enough on this aspect to, to truly engage with our guests? And if so, what are you doing? But if not, what else can we do to evolve further into this? Like you say, we're so varied. And I think that really helped across the board get as many visitors as we can you know all the those collections with their tiktok channels and i think the cornish seal sanctuary has a really good one and remember my colleagues always used to be on that i'm not on tiktok but i saw a lot of the good best ones because i got sent them to enjoy so i think there is that hard balance because we also want to we really want to say like like you say our, our animals are the best this is conservation but we also want to keep it that good day out because if it's not a good day out, then people won't come and then they won't learn. But we also need to have that realism side. You know, if something isn't done, this species will die and the ones here will just be like dodos living in, like just living dodos in the museum. If there's no habitat, there's no putting them back. We've really got to have that balance. I think sometimes it has gotten a little bit more fluffy. You know, I don't want to disparage anyone, but just be like, oh, yeah, here's here's a baby animal. Isn't this great? Which is great. And everyone loves seeing a baby animal. I think sometimes we also forget the scale of this much logging is happening. It's something, you know, we have previously seen over and over and over again. But it seems like we've sort of almost gone the opposite direction again for now. It it feels like we've sort of, we're trying to find that right balance between uh, the happy and the real. I think one thing that we do need to do is accept like we can encourage our guests to do the best that they can do, but we need to do collectively as zoos, we should be lobbying for more change at a higher level as well. Going back to it, because, you know, I'll just always talk about water, water use. If every visitor recorded visiting a zoo in 2019 was a unique visitor, just to make maths easier. And every single one of those took on the message of reducing water usage. 
and had a five-minute shower instead of a 10-minute shower. Again, averaging different shower pressures and shower heads, that should, on average, save about 60 litres of water, which would lead to 2.1 billion litres of water every single day. So we we absolutely should still target those guests and those individual choices. But a 2022 report suggested that 2.4 billion litres of water are lost every single day through water company leaks. So we can sort of, absolutely through our individual choices, we're going to do so much good by reducing our water use. But there's so much more there on a bigger scale, like more is being lost than by having that shorter shower. So accidents can happen and repairs need to be made. And I don't think anyone is expecting the loss of water company leaks to be nothing because accident happened, pipes wear, pipes leak. Uh, one large southern water supplier has already acknowledged that they're not going to be meeting their target for this year. And one of the things that they sort of are heralding, celebrating on their site is how they are absolutely committed to achieving their regulatory target, which doesn't feel like something to shout about. That just sounds like you're doing bare minimum so you don't get in trouble. doesn't seem like the good thing. And I know a lot of the water companies have those older ceramic pipes that need to be they, they need to be replaced and there's some leaks that are hard to find. I've spoken to someone who used to work at Thames Water and uh, one of my friends who did that. And so it is a big scale problem. But it's also something that we'd really need to address. And that, that's just one individual subject. There's just so many other things out there where our individual choices are absolutely important. But sometimes it's it's that bigger scale as well that we really need to use our collective to power to try and push it on as well. Yeah, very, very much so. Now, you'd be happy to know we're nearly there. We've nearly conquered those big questions. We've got one left, though. And that last one is about us. And I say us, it's about the, the keeping community. Very simply, do you think or do you believe we're collaborating enough at a keeping level or is there stuff to be improved? I think we can always improve, but I think generally we are improving. I don't know if it's necessarily where, I, where I've been in the industry at the time and seeing more conferences and more discussions and things. But I think people are generally more willing to share. I think things like social media certainly make it easier. Sometimes it can get a little bit lost in all the, uh, in all the noise of social media. But I think we generally are, we're generally getting better. I think one of the things is that people are often unwilling to share their mistakes, which as well as their as much as they are their victories. And I completely understand that. But both are such important learning opportunities because, you know, if I go ahead and make a mistake, I could easily stop someone else doing the same thing if I just go and shout about it. Sometimes, of course, it's sort of you're caught up in I've had this mistake, I've got this problem, I won't need to fix this problem. Now I fix this problem I fix the problem, the problem is done. And you kind of forget to do that afterwards, that little report, that little write-up and just sort of say, hey, had we had an issue with beadlet and enemies. These are the issues that happened. This is what we did about it. This is the problems we had about it. This is what we think we could do to avoid that happening. And then you can absolutely stop someone else having the same thing. I think there's also the complete opposite side of that, where people get into the sort of almost the more imposter syndrome side, those sort of thoughts of, well, I've done this. So... If I can do it, it must be easy. And actually, sometimes their achievements are fantastic. And you're just like, oh, hold up. No, no one's done that before or no one's done that in that way. I think we just need to be 
a little bit more mindful of, even if you just look and see, oh, actually, I can't see any written record that someone has done this. So I'll say about it just in in case it is very exciting. For those who aren't confident in that collaboration, I think it's really important to remember that there's, if you don't want to do a big, like a big written report or a big presentation at a conference, you don't want to put on social media because on the downside of it, you're just kind of putting it out into the ether and there's so many voices, different opinions looking at it and judging it and potentially tearing it apart. So I completely get that. But I think it's important to remember that post poster presentations at conferences exist as well. And they're a really good way of getting information out in a sort of semi-formal environment that's still a little, almost a little bit safer. You've got that little closed room. You don't have to go as big as full reports. You don't have to go as big as full spoken presentations in front of hundreds of people. But it's just getting that information out there a little bit more and just helping to just build confidence in collaboration. Because I think that's sometimes, like I said, I think, I think it's improving, but there's, there's more that can be done. I think we need to encourage the quiet voices as well as those who are happy shouting. Definitely some some great words there. No, we've, uh, I think that is a, a very perfect way to conclude the big questions. You've conquered them. You've smashed your way through. And that leads us to the, the final segment for this podcast. And that is what we call the quick fire rounds. Now, the listeners, as I say every time, are going to get used to this now. It's either going to go one of two ways. It either turns into quite a competitive quick fire round or what usually happens some of these questions explode into conversation and they don't stick to that quick fire round. So we'll see how we get on, Joe. Um, no pressure, um, all the same. So y- your first one is your favourite animal. So it's, it's not water, it is a fish. So uh, the shanny, just our native little shanny, uh, they are such cool little fish. Like they don't need to be in the water. Like it is fantastic if they are, they probably should be for the majority of the time. But they are often found in rock pools, tide pools, and when the tide recedes, so they they can be found in these pools, but sometimes they're just too stubborn. And if they've got a really good little territory, they'll just hang out in a little crack in the rock and sit there and watch the water go away and hold on and wait for it to come back rather than fight for that territory again. I think our native stuff is overlooked. Very much so. Yeah, I, I agree with that one. Now, number two then, and I think we might have covered this one, but what is your top tip for mental health? Absolutely, don't have emails or work messages on your phone if you're not at work unless you're on call definitely okay so i'm gonna go totally right field now what's your favorite film muppets christmas carol without a doubt gets a rewatch every christmas eve solid (laughs) okay so this is a big one and that is the best part of the industry uh the people in it and the dedication that they have i've met some fantastic people some really inspirational and devoted people they're just so dedicated i think that's got to be the biggest bit totally now this is one of the, the the fun questions that is what zoo globally do you want to visit and why? There's so many places that I'd love to go. Uh, one of them is St Andrew's Aquarium up in Scotland, nice and local, well, relatively local. And that's just because a number of my fish from when I worked at Birdworld went up there when we closed the aquarium. So I just want to go and see them out of sentiment. And it looks really cool. Um, but also Norsica over in France, don't know if I'm saying it right, haven't been there. Um, and Aquatis over in Switzerland. Um, they're doing some really cool stuff with some native swiss fish and some of the tanks just look fantastic some great shouts there you say definitely spinning your little aquatic ideas into that question which i love i love that answer now what what is that one trait which has allowed you to get to where you are today this one was one i found quite hard for quick fire but i think it's probably perseverance one of those uh where you try and look at yourself and what 
you do and i think it's just that just keep going i just keep going for better or for worse i just keep going <laughs> i pretty much agree with that i think that's a big aspect of zookeeping is you will get nose but expect though no those nose keep pushing on and you will get into the uh the, the yes territory in, in no time yeah and you'll have bad days and some awful times and you just just keep going and know that it's not always going to be like that and just keep pushing through totally now to take you out of the industry, it, I can't answer this one. I actually don't have an answer. And that is, if you wasn't a zookeeper, what would you be? So, yeah, this is one I really struggle with as well. I think I'd probably have gone into gardening or groundwork, just like following the family trade. Um, although as a kid, I wanted to be a writer. So there's a lot of people out there who probably, I don't think I'd be able to do it because I make too many misspellings. Um, the editors would have probably a heart attack. You know, who knows? Who knows? Maybe in the future. <laughs> a few memoirs in there. <laughs> Now, the industry as a whole, is there anything you would improve within the industry? Uh, I think one of the things that people, sometimes people think coming in is that they'll be working with animals so they can avoid working with people. So I think one of the things that generally across the industry that we could really work on, uh, myself included, it's just our people skills. Some people think they're going to be coming in, working with animals. You can avoid working with people and you can't. You just can't. <laughs> Um, you'll still be working with people, even if you end up going and doing field work and hiding in a stream in Borneo. There's going to be people like me asking about, what are you doing in that stream in Borneo? What have you found in that stream? What's the water like in the stream? That kind of thing. You're still going to have to interact with people. And some people, particularly as you get on through the through your career, people will get promoted up and go through because of their great work with the animals. And that's well-deserved. But you, especially when you get up to those management levels, you still need the people skills. You still need to communicate. I think that's the big one, really, actually. Yeah, I think when I'm saying people skills, I just mean communication. Just talk it through. And like, if you want someone to do something, say what it is you actually want them to do and just communicate with them Just and communicate your own desires uh, and what you want to advocate for your animals. Just communication. Yeah, I take it back. Not people skills, communication. Communication, yeah. No, I, to be fair, it's, especially in my workplace, a very large word and it's something which will, uh, it echoes around the industry. We, we definitely need to keep improving on, on all aspects. So yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, the next one, and we're nearly there, only two questions left, but this one is probably one of my favourites of the whole thing. And that is, who is your idol within the industry? I don't think I have a good answer for this. I, yeah, I just don't have a good answer for this because there's so many different aspects of people I've worked with or interacted with who are just so fantastic at what they do the different you know their different skills their different skill sets the different taxa they work with there are just there's too many to list and I don't think I could necessarily rank them even if I was given one particular skill set with which to do so there's just so many people that I've worked with who I just think are great and too many where I've uh, almost been cruel and put them on that on that mental pedestal and just been like oh yeah you are you're great you can do no wrong and i think yeah that is a little bit cruel because then that gives them no no error for mistake uh, no room for error um but i, I think they deserve to be there just because they do so well at what they do totally totally i mean i off off the cuff with this one just quickly before we move on to that last question then do you have an idol which got you into the industry rather than in the industry who is your inspiration to get you here whether that be whoever that may be but i know that obviously a lot of people will check out your atambras a lot of people will check out your irwins and so on but it was there 
How did you, who was your idol to inspire you to come in or was it simply a self-drive? I wouldn't say it was necessarily just my self-drive, but there was certainly things like definitely Attenborough helped inspire that interest. Like I used to watch uh, The Life of Birds, had it on videotape for far longer than I should have done. Far longer after it was obsolete where I'd just keep watching that and help provide the interest. And even just like some members of my family with their interest following that through and when I was in the Cubs, like different couple leaders helping inspire that that interest in nature and just kind of just following the path again i think there's just so many people and so many little facets just from even being on a walk and you know my grandfather tapping pine cones in the spring uh, of some of the pines up in up on chinthurst hill when seeing all the pollen come out that's a memory that i don't even know how long that stuck with me but just all of the people on the stop in their day and point out like oh look there's a you know there's a blue tit over on that feeder or what's that bug up to that that kind of thing there's just so many people at those really formative times i think it's just yeah just something that really helped me just keep following that interest that's great it's it's, it's, it's nice to hear you've had so many so many figures in your career now we lead on to this last question now this is one of the trickiest questions of the lot because as uh we're learning i'm going to condense you down i'm going to narrow it down and listeners know what's coming i want you now to describe the industry joe in only three words for us okay so committed, they are committed and inspiring because a lot of them are inspirational. Uh, and I think, and this isn't necessarily in a negative way, but honestly, I think a little bit incestuous at times. And that so many people in the industry know so many people in the industry. It'd be inter- really interesting to see that whole six degrees of separation, how low that number actually is between your, like all UK, European, even worldwide zookeepers everyone seems to know everyone no totally i think three great words to describe the industry three great words to bring this podcast to a close but more importantly a great way to end this podcast showing that it is you're not wrong everyone does seem to know everyone the connectivity is high the networking is high and i think that's our strength going forwards is is very much as a collective moving forward on, on all aspects yeah absolutely like i don't mean incestuous is a bad thing we've just got that connectedness totally totally now unfortunately i say unfortunately i'm sure along, along with myself and the lovely listeners i'm sure i can speak on their behalf it's been really nice listening to your story listening to your your world of aquatics and, and everything in between all that lovely water um Thank you so much for coming on, Joe. It's been a real privilege. Yeah, no problem. Uh, happy to talk about water anytime and the things that live in it. <laughs> Definitely. And hopefully we'll get you on again very, very soon. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Take care of yourself. Cheers. Bye. And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.